On May 18, 2022, we closed our foreign policy forum season with sold-out audience for a conversation with Dr. Fiona Hill. Dr. Hill is a senior fellow at the Center on the United States and Europe in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings Institution and former National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council. In the context of the ongoing war in Ukraine, Dr. Hill's remarks about the mindset of Russian President Vladimir Putin, the future security of Europe, and the importance of the preservation of representative democracy were all the more poignant. Ambassador-in-Residence Heather Hodges moderated the conversation, bringing in her own perspective as former ambassador to Moldova. Together with insightful questions by our audience, we enjoyed an evening of rich conversation. Please enjoy the forum. This evening, it's, we're very pleased to welcome Fiona Hill back to Cleveland. And I say back because she was here in March 2016, speaking to the Cleveland Committee on Foreign Relations. At the time, she was at the Brookings Institute, and um, she was um, her subject of her talk was Mr. Putin operative in, in the Kremlin. We were so impressed by her talk that we always wanted to invite her back, but a lot has happened between 2016 and now. In 2017, Fiona became deputy assistant to the president and senior director for European and Russian affairs at the National Security Council, where she is National Security Council, and served in that role until July of 2019. She then returned to the Brookings Institution, where she is a senior fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe in the Foreign Policy Program. In November of 2019, she was called on to testify during President Trump's first impeachment. She became nationally famous for her subject knowledge and her courage under difficult questioning. COVID made it impossible for us to invite her back last season, so we are delighted to have her back and back here in person. Nothing could have predicted the timeliness with, with Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Although we as CCWA are very proud of our timely programs, but. <laughs> Just to add a few more biographical notes, Fiona served previously as National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council from 2006 to 2009. She has also worked for the Eurasia Foundation and at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Fiona holds a master's in Soviet studies and a doctorate in history from Harvard University and a master's in Russian and modern history from St. Andrews University in Scotland. Further details are in your program. We're going to use an interview format tonight, so let's begin again. Fiona, welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Heather. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Your book lays out lessons that you have learned about democracy and the perils of populism. Clearly, you care very much about the subject. What led you to write the book with such clear warnings about the dangers of ignoring the plight of people who do not have economic opportunities? Well, I have to say, first of all, that um, the idea of writing a book, and just want to make sure that I've got a bit of feedback here. I turned mine on again. 
Let's see. Can, can you hear? Is that okay? I probably shouldn't have touched it, should I? That was probably what, what happened. Put my hands down here and not touch it again. <laughs> it's always the thing with mics, they're, they're very sensitive. But the, uh, the whole idea of uh, writing the book, to be honest, came out of uh, my unexpected uh, involvement as a fact witness in the uh, first impeachment trial. It was there that I realized fully how polarized we'd become as a society and as a polity here in the United States and how partisan infighting, as I even said during the questioning, was putting us at risk um, in terms of our national security. And that if something that should have been self-evident as a foreign policy issue had become all snarled up in our domestic politics. And I mean, I'm sure many of you remember some of the things that I said there at that time. And then um, on reflection after this, I, I got hundreds of letters from people, literally hundreds of letters from people around the country. They weren't always hate letters, death threats, I mean, there were, there were a few, but the majority of them were from people like yourselves and people like me who were really concerned about the state of uh, American politics and wondered, you know, how we'd got to this sort of situation where something that should have been, again, a foreign policy or a national security issue become so politicized. And also people offering their views about what they thought uh, about the state of our politics. And commenting on some of the things that I'd shared in my opening statement about my background, becoming an American by choice uh, as a naturalized citizen and having come here from uh, the northeast of England, and also some of the things that I'd said about my own family background, my father being a coal miner who'd left school at 14, coming from um, a post-industrial region that had fallen on really hard times. I'm actually very similar to here in Cleveland and Ohio as well. And I'd been thinking for quite a long time, based on my own experience of growing up in a blighted, uh, forgotten place that had once been somewhere that you know, actually people um, knew all about. Uh, my region of County Durham had been the heartland of the Industrial Revolution. And way back when, Ulysses Grant had actually come to open up one of the local museums, the President of the United States. Now most people couldn't find it on a map. And it was all because of this decline, you know, the economy moving on, the world moving on, and the people who were still there feeling left behind as well and, and cut out of politics. And in 2016, just before the tumultuous election here, uh, people in my hometown had overwhelmingly voted to leave the European Union for Brexit in the, the referendum. And I'd seen this coming uh, by going you know, backwards and forwards to UK and going back home. In my day job uh, at the think tank at the Brookings Institution, most of my colleagues who were looking at Europe, and at that point I was the director of the Centre on the US and Europe, couldn't believe that Britain would vote to leave the European Union. And in fact, the government didn't believe that people were gonna to vote to leave the European Union either. They kind of basically gambled uh, with the whole referendum. David Cameron, who was the pre uh, prime minister at the time, had thought there was more of a, a debate confined to his own party and he wanted to resolve it by throwing it out to referendum. And he had no idea that people in forgotten places in the old Rust Belt of Britain had actually uh, basically taken on board a lot of populist um, rhetoric that the reason that their fortunes hadn't changed in decades, you know, basically since the closing down of the coal mines and the steelworks and the shipyards and everything else that had been there was because of Europe, that money that should have gone to them was going to Europeans. Uh, they were, the United States, the Kingdom was paying an awesome amount of money to Europe and it was going to Bulgaria and Romania and there were immigrants coming in from European countries and taking their jobs, not in the north of England, but 
you know, making it impossible for them to move to other cities. Plumbers in the north of England were being replaced by plumbers from Poland kind of thing. And basically, all of those um, ideas, which were purely populist, and, and many of them were just completely untrue, but were falling on fertile ground because there was no other explanation for people about why for decades have there been no inward investment. Now, of course, it's all very complex. And when I knew from my own research a lot of the reasons, even though when I was growing up, I wondered about them myself, but I'd set myself off on a, a journey to kind of figure it out. But no one was telling people the truth. And you know, this really was having political impacts. And again, the only inward investment uh, for people to reskill, to get education at the local uh, vocational and technical college was actually come from the European Union. And the European Union had helped with a lot of the recovery from the coal mining era, but that was all just lost in the mix. And so 61% uh, of my whole hometown voted uh, for Brexit. And then we had the election here. And I have a lot of extended family through marriage here in the Midwest. And uh, some of my family from Wisconsin, uh, from Kenosha. And I'd go there every single year for every um, uh, basically holiday and I'd be talking to them. And it just sounds just like talking to my family, you know, back in the north of England for years, hearing complaints about being forgotten by Washington, not seeing themselves reflected in politics, a feeling of the breaking down of representational democracy and, and, and a dissatisfaction with both political parties, actually, but looking for somebody who's going to shake things up. And needless to say, the majority of people that I'd interacted with in that whole period running up uh, to the 2016 election voted for Trump because they wanted someone to shake things up. And it was the same dynamic that was happening in the north of England as well. And then I'd seen this happening in Russia. So I'd spent my whole professional life since 1984 looking at the Soviet Union and then Russia, looking at the transition that had been happening there and seeing very similar patterns. Putin talks about all the time the collapse of the Soviet Union being the greatest catastrophe of uh, the 20th century. And for an awful lot of Russians, they also felt that they lost their place in the world and also their place in their own society. Because in the 1990s, Russia embarked, as you well know, I mean, you served out in that region on a massive program of privatization, moving away from all the heavy industry. And as a result, just like in my home area, for different reasons, of course, people lost their jobs in mines and steelworks. And there was this huge uh, emergence of inequality as oligarchs, big business people, took advantage of the privatization and uh, took control of the assets. There was a breakdown of uh, rule of law, which actually never even really uh, gone into place, which didn't give people protections. People felt that they'd been ripped off. And they also felt that Russia had lost its place, not to the same degree, perhaps, as Putin, but similarly. And so when Putin comes into uh, power, he's actually named as the successor to Boris Yeltsin, so he doesn't really run for election. And he has to sort of, he does, but he sort of transforms himself into this populist president. He says he's going to make Russia great again. And his support, the mainstay of his support over the 22 years that he's been in power, is from the old Soviet Rust Belt, the heartland of uh, old Soviet industry, including... And this is why it's so precarious and so dangerous a situation we're in today. Places like Donbass, which found themselves outside of uh, the Russian Federation and in Ukraine. But Donbass was that old industrial uh, region of the Soviet Union where lots of Russians went to work there, which was built up in the whole period after World War II, very similar to where I grew up in the northeast of England or very similar you know, to places here. And when the Soviet Union fell apart, people there felt that they'd lost something as well. 
and and not everyone, but you know some considerable portion of the population there in places like Crimea retained an identity that was tied into the old Soviet Union, and Russia was the successor state to the Soviet Union, and so Putin was able to play on the the loss of identity, socioeconomic grievances, and uh, dissatisfaction with people who didn't feel that they were represented. Uh, in the old industrial heartland of Russia, and also in some of the places outside. And so that's, you know, I started to see all of this coming together, and I thought, how can I explain all of this? And the best way seemed to be to write a book and just lay all of that out. As a follow-up question. Oh, oh, you need the mic, Heather. Yeah, we keep thinking when you've got the lapel mic on, but I think you've still got it there. As, as a follow-up question, the subtitle of your book is Finding Opportunity in the 21st uh, uh, Century. Please m maybe discuss two or three things. I know you do at the end of the book, but um, two or three things that you can ex mention to this audience that might help people, young people, um, move on and maybe find more opportunities. Yeah, like I said um, also in my opening statement at the um, impeachment hearings that America gave me opportunities that I never would have had at home. I mean, my, my story of moving from what I call the coal house, you know, the old coal country, County Durham, where you know, my dad was a miner from age 14, to the White House, you know, in terms of a professional life, I couldn't have happened in the UK, honestly, and it could only happen in America. But the kind of um, what I call the infrastructure of opportunity that made that possible isn't really there for people today. Now, I came in, obviously, uh, as an immigrant. I uh, became a nationalized citizen. But when I came, the particular period that I came at the end of the 1980s, you know, my husband, who's from the Midwest, one of 12 kids, you know, kind of basically went to uh, college on Pell Grants. His dad had a, went to um, basically get an education on the GI Bill, the back of the GI Bill in the 1950s. They also had this you know, amazing American story. My father-in-law got his first job from the back of a cereal box. I mean, he, he basically grew up on a farm in South Dakota, uh, near Mitchell, where's the home of the Corn Palace, one of you know a large family of uh, farmers, multiple generations, also you know immigrants from Europe uh, and farming, and he'd wanted to help farmers uh, by you know kind of figuring out uh, more uses for um, corn and soybeans and other things, and so he decides to be study to become a chemist, and he hitchhikes uh, basically to uh, Wesleyan South Dakota University. Uh, goes back and works on the farm all the time. It's great, another all-American story. But when he finishes up his degree, he doesn't know how to get a job because he's only ever worked on a farm. And he's sitting and he's looking at his Cheerios, it was a Cheerios box. Um, I thought Cheerios were a really modern invention, but apparently they're, you know, they're back, back in the day they were there too. And he's looking at the Cheerios and he sees the address for the cereal company. So he writes away to them and says, please can I have a job and send them his resume. And they give him a job. I just could never believe that story. I was like, what? They give you a job like that? No, no interview, nothing. And I mean, he literally gets a job. And then, you know, he basically goes and, you know, works for international corn products. And he has all these patents of things you can do with corn that none of us have ever thought about before. But this was also an incredible story. And it's a story of opportunity through education. Because in each case, my father-in-law, me as well, it's all through education that gives you, you know, a leg up. And after um, I, I'd mentioned all of this, I got all these letters, a lot of people pointed out to me that those educational opportunities are not there. 
not in the way that they were before. And I started to look into this, being at the Brookings Institution, I have lots of colleagues who've been doing all of this research on this. And a bit, first they were a bit surprised why I was looking through all of their research stuff and things as well. Do you work on Russia? They kept saying. And I kept saying, well, no, but this is you know, my life experience and other people's experience that you're writing about here. And I discovered that you only have a 5% chance in the United States to do, to do what I did or what my father-in-law did, moving from you know, the bottom 5 or 6% uh, in terms of you know, income or socioeconomic bracket to the top. And that worried me because when I came to US, I thought pretty much everybody could do this, or at least 50% of the population. That I didn't think it was as rigid as the UK where you have all these class distinctions and lots of barriers and obstacles to opportunity. And it was true that in earlier phases, it was much easier because again, GI Bill, Pell Grants, and it wasn't there for everybody, but there was this expansion of opportunity in a period. And although there's still so many places in colleges, community colleges and uh, elite universities, the funding for all of this has disappeared because it's now seen as an individual responsibility. And so many people take on an enormous amount of debt. And I know there's a big debate about this right now, but I think there's a lot of people here in this audience, and certainly for me, I would never have gone to college if I'd had to take on an enormous amount of debt. You can't hear? Okay, yeah, so it's probably because I'm moving around a little bit. So I was saying I'm sure that there's the same feeling for a lot of people here in the audience is that you know, if you had to take on an awful lot of debt, if you were all starting out you know, again, you might think twice. I certainly would have done because I wasn't sure if I could get a job. And my parents didn't have any money you know, to assist me. And I was extraordinarily lucky because there were grants, there were scholarships. Uh, I was subsidized actually back at home because of um, coming from such a low socioeconomic background. And so part of the thing is to start to think about how can we enable people throughout the different points of their lives to get the kind of education and skills that they need without finding themselves crippled in debt. I, I don't believe that everybody should be you know, forgiven student loans, but the people who really need this to move ahead, because this is an investment in all of our society, because you know, so many people will give something back. And you know, we know through COVID, I mean, how much we need, we've been starved of nurses and you know, kind of primary care you know, physicians and so many of the people who've turned out to be essential workers that you know, we've all uh, you know, needed um, to, inter uh, to interact with and that we've needed their assistance. So how can we start to think about you know, all of this, for example? But then there's all kinds of smaller practical things. I, you know, talking about opportunity, I also think about the ways in which I was able to move ahead. And you've heard me tell this story already that you know, when I got into the working world, I just didn't have the money to buy work clothes. Uh, there's one of the themes in my book is dress. And you know, I mean, everyone talks about dress for success, but sometimes it can be <laughs> a little bit of a, another issue, particularly for kind of women in the workplace. But um, in my very first uh, professional job, I didn't have a suit, I didn't have anything, and I couldn't afford one. And a woman uh, that I worked with, a professor at the Kennedy School at Harvard, took me out to TJ Maxx and bought me a suit. And that was just such an amazing act of kindness. But it was, you know, now we have all kinds of um, nonprofit organizations like Dress for Success uh, and others that actually help people move themselves into the business world or to get an interview for the first time. Uh, people who volunteer and help people get their resume together. I didn't have to do that, you know, at first, like most people don't either. But all the way along the way of, of finding an educational opportunity um, and a business or a, a career opportunity, sometimes you need that extra bit of help. Sometimes it's actually not feasible to be able to do it. There were often things where I needed to go to an interview and I didn't have the money for the bus fare. Uh, and lots of people don't have that. I, I grew up in that family where they never had a car or a telephone because we couldn't afford it. 
And each time if somebody would come and just give you a ride, and there's also kind of ride-sharing programs. I mean, I don't mean Lyft and Uber. I mean, where people, you've driven me around today, Heather, for which I'm really grateful. But, you know, thinking about the, about how can you transport, you know, kids uh, and uh, adults, you know, who need, uh, you know, some assistance to getting, you know, where they need to be. And so at the back of the book, I've given some practical things, because lots of people say, look, this is just so enormous. I have so many problems here. I can't do anything. Yes, we all can do something. It doesn't mean necessarily giving money, but you can give your time and effort. And when you've got expertise, like you know, you're doing here with the Cleveland Council Word Affairs after a long public service in the Foreign Service, you can you know impart knowledge and wisdom and help each other out. And that's really at the kind of the grassroots of our democracy. I mean, it's that kind of larger sense of community and responsibility in assisting others. And it's the thing that keeps being missing in a lot of our polarization and uh, you know, uh, political parties and infighting. I was really struck again, getting back to that experience um, at the first impeachment about how people seem to have lost the sense of being Americans and you know, being part of the whole you know, congressional oversight and the kind of rules and the checks and balances in the system. And as a naturalized citizen, I'd had to study all that. I had to do civics, you know, because I had to pass a test and still remember the questions. And I also had to pass a, an English language test, which I think I was a bit offended about at first. Yeah. <laughs> I had to read out a sentence saying, the Statue of Liberty was a gift from France. <laughs> I said, how did I do? <laughs> anyway, I obviously passed. But uh, you know, there's all of that, um, you know, when you are a naturalized citizen, you know, you're taking the oath of citizenship, you believe it, you know, you're, you're really into learning about all of this. And you know, I, I just wish we could start taking a lot of that seriously again. And actually, at the end of your book, there are some very. You're going to have to remind me every time. Um, there are some very good ideas at the end of your book, mentoring, and many, many things that people could do. But let's turn to Russia. You're a lifeline student, a lifelong student of Russia. You have studied in Moscow, and you've also been an advisor or someone who helped teach many powerful people more about Russia. And yet, over time, there seem to have been many challenges for these powerful people to learn or to understand Russia. Um, curious sort of what happened, why didn't they get it? And also, why didn't, what, what mistakes did the United States and Europe make both in in 2014 and now that they didn't realize what country they were dealing with or the person they were dealing with? You know, I think part of the answer is in um, the framing of the question here. Um, because Vladimir Putin has now been in power for 22 years, one way or another. President, prime minister, president again, and potentially president forever, you know, at least until, you know, kind of he departs you know, this, this earth in a natural cause, perhaps, you know, where everyone's looking at that and wondering about it right now, but he's extended his terms in office so that in theory, he could run again and again out until 2036. And that means that I mean, we've all been students of Vladimir Putin uh, during all this time, but if then you think about it, he's already gone through five US presidents thereabouts in terms of, you know, the presidential terms and, you know, sort of started off with Bill Clinton, you know, who was on his way, you know, out the door uh, when Putin was coming in. And that means that we haven't had a consistent approach towards dealing with Russia. I mean, you know, you know, from your whole experience in the Foreign Service, people move on. 
So our ambassadors, you know, may serve in some cases for the full term of a president, but usually they serve at the pleasure and the behest of the president. And so when one president goes, it's rare for an ambassador to stay on unless they were, they're not seen as a political pointy in some way, like yourself as being a foreign uh, service um, official. And they might uh, basically transfer over into another administration, but it's not the norm. And so the kind of accumulation of problems for us is that we've, we've constantly lost the ball. You know, we, we haven't been tracking it because we change over all the time. And every administration, when they come in, does a new national security strategy. And they do a new strategy towards Russia. Well, Putin's got the same old strategy. And he's just keeping on there, you know, keeping an eye on everybody. And they've got a who's who and a chart of everyone. And some people get recycled and come back. I was a national intelligence officer under Bush and the first year of Obama, and then I came back again, so they knew who I was. But a lot of people, you know, change over. And although we have a kind of a revolving door and kind of think tanks and, um, you know, some people like me stay, you know, I've stayed at the Brookings Institution on and off for, you know, quite some time now, actually the whole time that Putin's been in power, but I've been, you know, in and out of government. Um, you know, we lose a lot of the expertise for people like you, Ambassador Hodges, because you've been ambassador in many places and you're right on top of your game and then you move on to the next place. And it might not be next door. It might be you've been in Latin America as well as in Eastern Europe. You know, you might be off to Venezuela, you know, after being in Russia or something. And, you know, this means that a lot of our expertise, our brain trust uh, disappears. Uh, a lot of people talk all the time about the deep state. There isn't really a deep state in uh, the United States. It's a very thin state because we have so many political appointees. In fact, I'm sure people are well aware we've got all kinds of places that we haven't even named ambassadors to yet. And then they get snarled up in Congress and in the Senate. And that's exactly part of the problem that we have. And although we have permanent staff, particularly in the intelligence uh, services, it's that policy making, you know, the forward facing uh, parts of the interaction uh, with Russia that's very important. So what we've done over time is lose the threat. And one thing that, you know, might seem counterintuitive to people, but, you know, when I tell you this, you, you'll you know, obviously say, ah, oh, yes, of course. Notes don't get passed from one administration to the next. Remember all this worry about Trump ripping them all up and sticking them in and flushing them down the toilet and, uh, you know, uh, or taking them to Mar-a-Lago. Um, and other people clearly taking their notes home as well. All of the notes from, and I was an avid note taker. I mean, there's a story where President Trump thought I was the secretary, but that was actually part of my job, was taking lots of notes. But all of my notes went into a box and then they go into the archives somewhere and I'm not allowed to access them after the end of the administration. And then no one's allowed to access them for many years. So I've actually been called back in by colleagues you know, who are now working in the government. Say, so what happened in that meeting that you were in? Because they don't have access to the notes. And you think about that. So how can you have a continuity of you know, figuring out where there might have been a misstep? And the UK does exactly the same thing. Putin doesn't. You know, so this becomes part of our problem. He's always several steps ahead of us because our guys are trying to catch up on what the other guys said, you know, particularly in a transition which becomes very vulnerable. And this is actually why Putin miscalculated, I think, because he saw lots of changes. You know, Biden administration coming in, although he knew quite a few of the people, and Biden himself, I mean, Biden had been vice president, Putin had met with him, Senate foreign relations, he met with him there. Biden's actually probably one of the few people who's been tracking Putin the whole way through. And he brought in many of the old Russia hands that had been uh, around in the Biden um, administration as well. 
At the same time, they haven't had all that continuity of what's been going on. And so Putin can take advantage of that. The same in Europe, he saw Angela Merkel, uh, the chance of Germany leaving. And he saw you know, a new German government coming in that wouldn't necessarily know everything that happened before, even if some of them had served with Merkel, and the French election coming up, and all of these things happening. And he thought he could take advantage of all of it. And it's, so it's an accumulation of things, and people forgetting about mistakes that we might have made earlier and kind of repeating them. Because you, know, you and I were talking earlier and recounting you know, things that had happened way back when. But each new crop of people who come in don't necessarily know that, and then they can't go back you know, to the files and look things up. They just have to go to Wikipedia and Google it, you know, like the rest of us do. Yeah, and, that's, and Putin, again, has got this whole continuity of, of things that he's been focused on. And that's why, as you said, we shouldn't have um, missed uh, this trajectory, uh, particularly after 2014 when he annexed uh, Crimea. Ukraine has been at war with Russia since that time, and one might even say from going back further. I'm going to ask you, as you know, I was ambassador to Moldova from 2003 to 2006, and I can assure you that quite a few people in this audience knew where Moldova was before February. Right. <laughs> um, now more people do know. But I, this is sort of a what next question. What, what do you think will happen to Moldova? Moldova is constitutionally neutral, um, but would that stop Putin? No, it wouldn't stop Putin. Um, and in fact, um, you know, he says that it's that uh, move, you know, from Ukraine to maybe joining NATO, um, or you know, at one point um, the annexation of Crimea came after Ukraine wanted to have an association agreement with the EU, that was the proximate cause of you know all of the, the trouble. But in fact, when Ukraine was completely and utterly neutral in the 1990s, this is even before Putin, there was a lot of pressure being put on Ukraine, and also. In um, 2004 and 2006, in the period where Ukraine had its um, so-called Orange Revolution, Ukraine was also neutral. Um, it wasn't aligned uh, with any um, uh, other alliance, and Russia cut off the gas. Uh, you know, Putin was there too. So we know that uh, Ukraine has been in the crosshairs all the time. And I'll just give you kind of an example of another neutral, very neutral country. Uh, that um, put Russia put pressure on, and rather unexpectedly, Ireland. So remember a few weeks uh, before the Russian invasion, the Russian Navy decided to have uh, exercises uh, in the Atlantic inside the exclusive economic zone of Ireland. Now, Ireland is so neutral that they don't even really have a military. They have, about, I think it's like four Coast Guard cutters that are supposed to be you know, out there for smuggling you know, in the Irish Sea or around the Atlantic. They have a couple of training aircraft for international missions, and they have a kind of a, a reserve, you know, the kind of guard that also takes part in peacekeeping missions. So the only force that kind of tried to counter these Russian naval exercises was Irish fishermen in their trawlers. And, you know, they complained. And as a result of this, they got, uh, the Irish government got essentially demarched by the Russian government accusing them of aggression. And I mean, this is, you know, the Irish now actually rethinking, even as a result of all of this, their own neutrality and non-aligned status, just, you know, like many other, you know, countries are doing as well. And Moldova I mean, is also proving the point that even by being neutral and trying to stay out of it, trouble comes to you anyway. Now, you well know, because you were the ambassador there, 
But Moldova also, like Ukraine, has had a lot of tension because of a separatist region, that, uh, Transnistria, that also has Russian troops stationed there. It's another region like the Donbass that was heavily industrialized during the Soviet period, with lots of Russian speakers and others going to work in the industries there, became a, um, a Soviet-era military base. And that has been used as leverage against Moldova all the time. And every time Moldova wants to do something, you know, like get closer to Europe or, you know, kind of go its own way in elections and not uh, basically elect the pro-Russian candidate, tensions flare up in Transnistria. And we've seen many times now threats against Moldova by Putin and people around him. Uh, Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, which has been used as a staging ground uh, for the war in uh, Ukraine, even had a bizarre press conference in which he's pointing out the next front of the Russian offensive and pointing to Moldova. Uh, the Moldovans had a bit of a panic attack you know, after that one, and everyone's like, is, was, was he just messing with us? Or is this actually, is he telling us or warning us? Or what's going on here? And so what um, this whole invasion of Ukraine does put everyone on edge. And Putin clearly wanted a signal with the invasion of Ukraine that everyone else could be next. And the, the problem is that the everyone else is fairly extensive in terms of ways in which uh, and places that Russia might put on pressure. Because Putin's whole view is of Russian dominance over the old territories of the Russian Empire, not just the former Soviet Union, but the Russian Empire, which includes the Baltic states and Poland, to some degree Finland, and, and you know, other countries that at one point were part of uh, the, the, the imperial Russia. Finland was the Grand Duchy of Finland, Poland was the Grand Duchy of Warsaw. The Baltic states had been incorporated you know, pretty early on when they were taken from Sweden you know, in the 1700s, you know, you know, for example. Also the Caucasus, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, for example. And all of those places have really felt a lot of pressure uh, from Russia, I mean, even including the Baltic states, you know, efforts to kind of whip up Russian speakers in the Baltic states. And of course, Poland is now the main recipient of refugees from Ukraine. And Putin, I think, was pretty convinced that this would really destabilize Poland. Weaponization of people. In fact, I think it is part of the Russian policy to push people out, because you can control territory a lot easier when there's no one there. And then you can also destabilize other countries, as we saw during previous waves of refugee crises in, um, uh, in Europe, from Syria and Afghanistan and elsewhere, by sudden large in, and sustained influxes of people. And one third of the Ukrainian population has up until now been displaced or um, sent into exile. It's increasing all the time. And it's a population of 40 million people. And it's right there, you know, obviously on the borders of Poland and Romania and the, you know, the Black Sea and elsewhere. And Moldova's small. <laughs> Very small, yeah. Um, turning to Ukraine. I was very interested in some comments you made this afternoon about Ukraine and democracy, the effect it's having on the Ukrainians. I think it's a real lesson for all of us here. Um, we were earlier at um, uh, the local community colleges and you know, one of the students was you know, basically asking um, questions uh, about, um, about Ukraine and you know, kind of why should we you know, be so supportive of Ukraine? And many of the reasons that I put forward, one of them is that Ukraine and Ukrainians are fighting to be a kind of a civic nation at this moment, for people to be citizens, no matter who they are and what background they are. And Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, sums this up. He's a Russian speaker. Uh, that's his native language, although he obviously is 
learned Ukrainian. He's also Jewish. And that's significant because in the Soviet period, when people had their passports, they would have their ethnicity or nationality listed in it, Russian, Ukrainian. And Jew, being Jewish, was written as a separate ethnic identity, not as a religious affiliation. And so Jews were considered to be a separate people. And so for someone like Putin, although he's not uh, anti-Semitic, he can't get his head around the fact that a Jew could think of themselves as Ukrainian, particularly uh, because of you know, Ukraine's history during World War II of being you know, kind of the center of so many of the massacres uh, of Jews by uh, Nazi Germany and the occupying you know, forces. And of course, Babinyar, or Babiyar as it's sometimes uh, known in um, Kiev, was a scene of one of the most horrific uh, mass slaughter of the Jews uh, of Kiev uh, during World War II. And uh, Zelensky's, uh, some of his own family members were killed there on the side of this ravine and you know, basically ended up in this mass grave. But what Zelensky is basically saying, it doesn't matter who you are in Ukraine, everyone can be Ukrainian. I mean, that's how we used to be all the time. It didn't matter whether we were this or that or the other. We were all American. We've had this sort of sense of shared purpose. And what Ukraine is showing us right now is literally, you know, how people are able to overcome a lot of differences when there's, well, in this case, there's an existential threat, but when something really means a lot to them. And Ukrainians, I mean, as you know from being there in Moldova, they could be Romanian-speaking. There are Romanian minorities or Hungarian-speaking you know, uh, minorities on the Ukrainian borders with Hungary. Ukraine has had, like many places, shifting borders over time. Other empires, you know, coming and going, the Austrians, the Germans, the Swedes, you know, back in the day, the Poles, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, you know, one of the biggest states in Europe back again in the you know, pre-modern period uh, were there. So there's Polish minorities, Belarusians, you know, speaking different languages. Uh, Ukrainian is its own language, but P Putin's basically saying it's a, a dialect. It's, uh, you know, Ukrainians are little Russians, as they were known in the imperial period. These are not real people. And he told George W. Bush in 2008, you know, George, Ukraine isn't a real country. Part of it was in Eastern Europe and part of it was given to us. And he means that after various wars when treaties ceded different parts of Ukraine to then the Russian Empire. And Zelensky and every Ukrainian, I mean, 97% of Ukrainians are saying that they're going to win this war because, you know, basically they see this as a fight for themselves, for their own identity, their right to be Ukrainians. And the people who are suffering the most during this conflict right now are the Russian speakers, the very people that Putin is saying are actually Russians. They're not rising up in support of Putin uh, or uh, wanting to be part of Moscow. Some might be, but the vast majority are not, just as he thought that they would, you know, when he moved in in uh, February. And they're saying, look, we don't want to be part of your Russian past. We want our own future. And Ukrainians are really citizens of their own country. One of my colleagues um, at the Kennan um, Institute, Lucien Kim, who had been the um, bureau chief of NPR um, in Moscow, summed this up like this. He said, Ukrainians are citizens of their own country. Russians are the subjects of their ruler. And that's basically what Putin is basically saying to Ukrainians. Sorry, <laughs> you can't be your own people. You're, you're Russian. And if you refuse to be Russian, then you know, I'm going to destroy you. Um, this will be my last question, so if you have a question, you may want to start lining up by the microphones. Right. Um, you have said that we, that we are not just on the brink of World War III, we are in it, and we have been for some time. Does Finland and Sweden's interest in NATO make things worse? 
No, I think it actually sort of reflects the complexity of all of this. And look, I, I don't want people to start thinking, what on earth does she mean by this? I mean, basically, a lot of these, um, if you think about World War II, it came out of the failure to resolve many of the disputes that were left over after World War I. And Putin has actually explicitly said that one of the reasons he's invaded Ukraine is because of Vladimir Lenin, um, 100 years ago, in 1922, you know, at the end of the Russian Civil War, just about the time that the Cleveland Council on World Affairs was um, set up, because next year, right, is your 100th anniversary. You should have had Lenin to come and talk you know, back in the day. That would have been interesting. It might have changed world history. Who knows? Uh, he, uh, basically, Lenin made this terrible mistake by creating Ukraine as a separate socialist republic. And, I mean, those of you will remember that... Um, Ukraine and Belarus were kind of a high in the hierarchy of Soviet republics and even had seats, nominal seats on the United Nations in the, the General Assembly, even though they weren't actually separate. There was this idea in the Soviet Union that the, the Union republics could become independent. That was never going to happen, but it did eventually. But that was Lenin wasn't anticipating it happening, but it was a kind of a, a sort of a fiction to give people a kind of sense of autonomy within the Soviet Union. Now, Putin thinks that was a massive mistake and that he says that Lenin created Ukraine. And so he's taking us all the way back, you know, to that very period after, you know, World War I. And World War II broke out because Hitler, you know, wanted to kind of reverse, you know, many of uh, the, the same settlements that came out of World War I. And Stalin piled on too, because in the secret, you know, protocol, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact between Hitler and Stalin, that Stalin thought Hitler would never invade the Soviet Union, Stalin got to take back territory that was also lost because of the dissolution of the Russian Empire at the end of World War I, like parts of Poland, the Baltic states, and Finland. He tried Finland, and the Finns fought them off, you know, in the same way that basically now uh, Ukraine is fighting off Russia. And World War II, of course, was fought in multiple places. And I think, you know, people worry when they think of World War because if we think about how it ended with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and Putin's trying to scare us all, by the way, with this, you know, kind of rhetorical mentioning of nuclear weapons, because he knows it's literally pushing our buttons, even if he's not actually pushing the button, because he knows that then we'll all be rushing to try to sue for peace and carve Ukraine up, because that's what he's hoping for. He's hoping for a classic post-World War I settlement, or like a post-World War II idea where, you know, he and Biden, or, you know, back like at Yalta and Potsdam, where you had Stalin and Churchill, and Roosevelt were, were basically carving Europe up. And he wants to have that happen. He's saying this is a proxy conflict. This is like these wars. But they also had global far-reaching consequences. And that's going to happen here as well. Because we're already seeing this. Ukraine is not just the breadbasket of Europe. It's the breadbasket for uh, the globe. And there are many places in Africa and the Middle East that are completely dependent on uh, Ukraine for its grain. Um, and also, you know, cooking oil, sunflower. For example, it's one of the symbols of Ukraine is uh, sunflowers. And uh, energy prices, the whole energy markets are getting uh, shifted. Um, I mentioned to you just before we came in here that I, I saw a little news item that India is now buying more energy from Russia than ever before uh, and that because it's at a discount, so they haven't, you know, joined in on the sanctions. And now um, Russia's share of India's uh, fuel mix is far higher than it ever was, you know, in the last year it's just shot up. So other countries are changing their patterns as well. Countries like China are obviously watching this very closely. China was kind of even in on the act. 
by you know, declaring an unlimited partnership uh, with Putin. We're seeing a massive tectonic shift here, which is the kind of thing that happens with these kinds of wars. I mean, although we should have paid more attention to wars in Syria and Yemen and, you know, obviously Afghanistan and Iraq were major events for us too with long-term consequences. Ukraine is going to actually shape a lot of our international relations for years to come. And it's showing the inadequacy of the institutions that we put in place after World War II to make sure we wouldn't go back to the same kinds of things that marred the 20th century. But Putin's right back at it. Thank you. I think we will start with questions on the right, and then we'll go to the left, or my right. All right, so we'll start with you, sir. Uh, Ms. Hill, I'm very much looking forward to reading your book, uh, because I'm very sympathetic, uh, and I think I understand the plight of the Ukrainian people fighting for their freedom and, uh, and democracy. Having myself uh, fought the Red Army, the Soviet uh, people, during the 1956 Hungarian Revolution, ah, I can sympathize what uh, uh, they are doing, and I, I very much support the, the support that we, the West, are providing the Ukrainian people. I wish uh, the West uh, and uh, President Eisenhower, who was the president then, provided half as much support for the Hungarian Revolution. But that's beside the point. The point really is uh, that <laughs> Eisenhower didn't want a war with uh, uh, the Red Army. Uh, President Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, was much more courageous, and indeed uh, he declared an ultimatum to Khrushchev, and uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, uh, they backed down and uh, we prevented uh, a nuclear war. Uh, right now, Putin is threatening us, as you know, with hypersonic uh, uh, nuclear-armed uh, missiles. And uh, I just wonder, since you know him uh, more than any one of us in this room, I'm sure, uh, how does he perceive uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, and Khrushchev's behavior and Kennedy's behavior? Do you think he belie believes that Kennedy was bluffing? when he declared the, 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 the threat, or, or, or uh, as, as indeed uh, we think that Putin is bluffing, how does he view all this? Well, that's a great uh, set of questions, and actually I'm, I'm really glad for your comments as well, because there's one thing uh, that you said at the very beginning, and obviously your experience back in Hungary, which is actually relevant just to Ukraine, so I'll, it wasn't a question, but I want to pick up on your comment there before I get on to you know, the issue of nuclear weapons, which is extremely important, and I think you've framed it in an excellent way. But I think Putin thought when he moved into Ukraine uh, in February that he, was, that he was just doing what the Soviet Union did in Hungary in 1956, in Czechoslovakia in 1968, and also in Germany and then Poland. He, he saw it as a kind of almost a domestic within his own zone issue, and he thought that um, basically things would play out in the same way, that uh, they would um, basically topple uh, the um, Ukrainian government very quickly. Uh, that yes, there would be some resistance, but it might be like in Hungary. You know, as he was saying, there was very little support, and the Hungarian revolution was quashed quickly. And that's clearly what Putin thought he was doing. And in fact, uh, Putin um, seems to have planned for something just like that. Although there's a lot of military force, he was also putting into place 
the Russian guards, the Roskvadia, the reserves who mostly do policing operations. So we clearly thought that the military aspects of this, like in Hungary and Czechoslovakia, would be fairly short-lived. There wouldn't be much of a response. And then you'd kind of come in with policing and you'd put your own person in charge, just as happened in Hungary and Czechoslovakia and, and elsewhere. So I think that was a very interesting observation on your part. And then, you know, again, a misreading of history uh, on, on his part as well, and, and including on the nuclear weapons. Putin is an operative from uh, the, the KGB, uh, or the FSB, the Domestic Intelligence Services. So he does think about things as instruments that he can use. And we know he's already used some pretty nasty instruments in all kinds of different ways, uh, using polonium, or given, he's given the order for the use of polonium to poison Alexander Litvinenko in London. And Litvinenko then becomes like a human dirty bomb, basically um, spreading polonium, you know, basically nuclear material all over London. Similarly in Salisbury, uh, trying to assassinate uh, another spy, Sergei Skripal, with um, a, a totally banned weapons-grade nerve agent, basically essentially using a chemical weapon. Uh, and it could have killed you know, most of the population of Salisbury because there was enough in the perfume bottle that his assassins put it into to kill 4,000 people. And then you know, they um, put that in Alex uh, Alexei Navalny's underpants as well to, you know, to basically assassinate him. Now, those have all failed, but you can be sure that he's thinking about you know, what he can do in the nuclear sphere because he wants to, if he makes a threat, he wants to make good on that threat. The difference with the Cuban Missile Crisis and then later the Euro missile crisis, was that these were all kinds of sort of set piece um, war scares. Anyway, there's, you know, there was a, Khrushchev wasn't making these decisions alone. There was the Central Committee, there was the Politburo. Uh, this was over the United States decision to uh, put missiles in Turkey. And then the Soviet Union threatening, as we know, to put them close to the United States and Cuba. And there was a lot of back channeling you know, going on to talk about this, and then agreements after the fact to restore strategic stability. So, I mean, there was a lot of performance uh, and, and, you know, real, you know, each other calling each other's buff. There was also systems in place, and then more systems in place. Even during the um, Euro missile, the nuclear war scares of the 1980s, which is when I started to study Russian uh, against the backdrop of that to understand what was going on. Again, it was because the US was had new categories of nuclear weapons, and Russia or the Soviet Union had new categories of nuclear weapons and we were you know, stationing them and then we had all these agreements. Now, in this case, you mentioned hypersonic uh, missiles. Only Russia has so far developed those. And in my last meeting between Putin and Trump that I took part in, in Osaka at the G20, Putin just says to Trump, hmm, you know, Donald, your allies all remember the Euro missile crisis. And we, of course, remember, and they call it the Caribbean crisis, that Kind of confused Trump because I don't know, you know, if we could see him thinking Caribbean crisis. <laughs> what happened there? Uh, and it was the Cuban Missile Crisis, obviously. We explained that after the fact. Uh, and it was kind of putting us on notice, even then, this is before Ukraine, that he was thinking about how we could get us all riled up on, you know, threatening with uh, nuclear weapons, hopefully to get a rift uh, between us at the point and our European allies, because the United States at that point was about to pull out of the INF Treaty because Russia was violating it. And we wanted to have all these discussions about where we go next. And so Putin, uh, in, in part, is nuclear bargaining because he's trying to frighten everybody and he wants to have nuclear, you know, any kind of nuclear agreement now on his terms in the future to give him a freer hand. But he's also behaving like Kim Jong-un in North Korea because he's also engaging in nuclear blackmail. 
Because, I mean, what does Kim Jong-un threaten to blow us up for? I mean, it's mostly because we're not being nice. And, you know, we're not, um, we, we've got sanctions on him and, you know, he wants us to do, you know, kind of various things. But we, we haven't been posing any kind of existential threat to, you know, North Korea for, you know, a very long time, despite the division. We haven't been making any moves. And in the case of Russia, we weren't stationing new kinds of nuclear weapons there. We haven't uh, made any decisions about anything like that in the future. So Putin's doing this purely because he wants to affect his land grab in Ukraine. So we have to see why is he doing it. And he's deploying it rhetorically also to test things out. In fact, I mean, there is, um, and maybe you'd seen this, uh, a kind of a cartoonish um, uh, piece in one of the Russian newspapers uh, talking about the children of Satan, that says, and about how, you know, kind of uh, Russia's going to bomb them uh, and um, shows a missile and it looks like it's being launched from Moscow and it's coming around the globe and landing here, Cleveland, Ohio. Just to be clear, it's very clear that it's here, <laughs> Ohio. But it's just, it's just messing with us. Putin's doing this. He's done simulations of uh, hypersonic missiles. We had a big screen in front of him during a, a, an address to the, um, the, the Russian um, parliament and uh, all of the uh, parliamentarians. And it looked like he was bombing Mar-a-Lago on the simulation. Looks like, you know, the um, uh, peninsula. So it's, just, it's all a psychological game here as well. But he is also thinking about how if he feels we're not, he hasn't got our attention, then he might be thinking about using it. So what we have to do is get ahead of it. Uh, Biden has already said this is completely irresponsible, but I'm pretty confident that the Chinese and all the other nuclear powers, even, you know, uh, putting aside Kim Jong-un and in Iran, you know, we're having a whole difficult um, conversation with about nuclear programs, but other nuclear powers won't like this at all. Whereas what Putin is basically saying, to be anyone in the world, you need a nuclear weapon. And Ukraine had nuclear weapons at the very beginning of the 1990s, as did Belarus and Kazakhstan. I mean, we were in the... Uh, State Department at the time, because when the collapse of the Soviet Union happened, there was all these strategic nuclear weapons and intermediate nuclear weapons stationed outside of the Russian Federation. And when Russia became a successor state, it didn't necessarily immediately take control of that whole nuclear arsenal. And the United States government was heavily involved, along with the UK as another nuclear power, to get Ukraine and others to you know, basically give up that nuclear arsenal. And Ukrainians got assurances, there wasn't very much of assurance there, that nothing would happen to them as a result. And that's exactly what's happened. So it's not just about Putin and his saber rattling in the nuclear sphere and trying to intimidate us. This has really serious consequences for everyone. It's not just about you know, the United States. It's not just a rerun of the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Euro Missile Crisis when we were the only big nuclear powers. I mean, China is now rising, India, Pakistan and nuclear powers and a lot of other countries would like to be. And this is really changing the whole, that's what I meant about the global implications, the whole strategic balance. So we can't let that rest and we can't wait for him to do it. We have to basically get ahead of it and uh, be really engaged on the diplomatic front. Sorry, that was a long answer. And, um, but you had so much packed into that. Uh, hi, Fiona. David Delgado here. We've had some discussions hey, yeah, in the past. Nice How are you? you? Good to see you. You know, I was going to ask a question about the uh, the reset and what happened to detente, um, but you mentioned just now that he's trying to get our attention. Uh, there's a group called the Russian International Affairs Council. I'm sure you're you're familiar with it, uh, Andrei Kortnov. They published a publication in 2012 called Postulates of Russian Foreign Policy, 2012 to 2018. They've since somewhat updated it. Uh, but in there, it clearly stated that Russia would not tolerate encroachment on their territory um, 
essentially by unfriendly, unfriendly countries. So it comes as a surprise then that everybody's surprised that he invaded Ukraine. My question is, and I say everybody, I mean the administration, perhaps not the intelligence services, but uh, you may have alluded to it earlier, wasn't anybody listening? Didn't anybody read that document? This is the Russian International Affairs Council, which is a part of the Russian Foreign Ministry. He clearly said, we're not going to tolerate this. And yet, he invades Ukraine 2014. He invades again now. And everybody's shocked. Wasn't anybody listening, paying attention? Look, I think a lot of people were. But, I mean, you've also just put your finger on the problem there, David, because Putin thinks of Ukraine as his territory. And... You know, um, Britain thought of the United States, its territory, in all of those wars of 1812 as well, but the United States had been independent for about the same sort of time, 30-plus years, right? And that's part of the whole problem that we have, is Putin can't stop thinking about other places as part of this territory. And I grew up in the United Kingdom, and, yeah, you know, those memories really die hard. You know, um, I remember, you know, reading about... Queen Mary I, Elizabeth I's older sister, who becomes queen, and they said she died with Calais engraved on her heart. And I thought, engraved on her heart? Did she engrave Calais? Is that why she died? You know, she write Calais on her heart? But the whole, the whole idea was that she thought Calais and most of France, you know, belonged to England at that point, because, you know, at various points, parts of northern France had done. And, you know, with the spats with the UK and France recently over fishing rights post-Brexit, you'd think, you know, maybe that was kind of still the case. Britain, you know, still has Gibraltar. And there was the Falkland Islands. We had a, you know, a whole war over the Falkland Islands, and most people in Britain thought Falklands Islands were in Scotland and wondered how Argentina had got there without anybody noticing because there's Falkland Sound and Falkland Castle. And empires have a really hard time letting go. And the United States got really angry with France and Britain during the Suez Crisis in 1956 because they still seemed to think that they owned the Suez Canal. And, you know, Russia uh, and, and Putin, I mean, as it's all been laid out in all of um, these documents, just can't see places like Ukraine as being an independent country. And that is, of course, we shouldn't have been surprised if that's why it is. But that also becomes a problem for every other country that was once part of somewhere else. Why Pakistan and India at loggerheads? Because once they were part of British India. And after um, Britain pulled out, there was partition into Pakistan and Bangladesh and, uh, and, and India itself, and there was East Pakistan and it was now Bangladesh, and there are so many places in the world where this will set an absolutely appalling precedent, including for Russia down the line with countries like China. If you go to China, and I was there, you know, several years ago, and went into, um, you know, speak um, at one of the Chinese universities, and I saw a map, and let's just say a whole swathe of Russia was coloured in. Uh, from Imperial China. In fact, most of the Russian Far East, uh, from Lake Baikal out to you know, Vladivostok, Khabarovsk, and all these other um, uh, cities, uh, were, up until the 1860s, part of Imperial China, at least you know, loosely under their um, sovereignty. And a lot of Chinese nationalists have not forgotten that, and it's not like they get reined in by Beijing either. And there was um, a conflict uh, on the Amur River uh, between uh, China and the Soviet Union back in 1969, 1970. Just recently, India and China uh, exchanged fire and several people were killed in the Himalayas over their disputed border. So the point of all this is you're absolutely right. I mean, they were signalling it. But at the same time, you know, it wasn't their territory. 
And that's another reason why uh, Putin miscalculated, because getting back to you know, your great point you know, about Hungary, was he thought Ukraine was a domestic issue. And the people who planned the war with him were the FSB, the domestic intelligence services, not the foreign intelligence services. And we saw Mr. Narishkin, the head of the foreign intelligence, the SVR, at a very staged event and uh, on the run up uh, to the um, invasion, looking really concerned and puzzled because he was you know, supposed to be part of the whole act. And you could tell that he was like, whoa, what do I say here? You know, and it's in you know, these rooms where Putin's here and they're way over there. And obviously, Narishkin hadn't got in you know, before this. And you could just see on his face consternation and, and worry. And you know, we know that you know, people like Andrei Kortinov from, um, uh, from Briak, you know, as you mentioned, others would have, would have advised against uh, you know, kind of going into Ukraine. Because in 30 years, Ukraine has become a foreign country. Uh, Ukraine, you know, has, uh, people have become citizens of that country. They don't see themselves as a domestic issue for Russia. And that is, you know, kind of exactly part of the problem. And it's going to be something that is going to be a part of a problem in the future, because absolutely right, we we're not surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. The intel community called it. Um, you know, people like you were watching this happening. But, you know, we're still dealing with these consequences, getting back to, you know, how we are before, where people's maps of what their country is, you know, kind of sometimes stay pretty rigid when others have moved on. Look, we've, we're having fights ourselves here in our own country, you know, about our, where we are, who we are as Americans, where we're off to. Putin is actually fighting Russia, uh, Ukraine over history in the past. Uh, and it's a war about history. And that is a really difficult war to end. I'm, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping we can get two more questions in. Yeah, and I'm sorry I'm giving really long answers, but hopefully I'll get the chance to catch up with a few people at the end as well. I, I think you may have just answered my question. It was really the intersection of history versus the present geopolitical environment. I mean, there, the natural resources, the access to water, there's, there's a lot to be gained independent of, of, of the historical nature of, of, the, of the war. And so I wondered, in, on balance, what your view was in terms of what he would settle for uh, from a historical versus a present geopolitical resource perspective? I mean, it's a great question because if you look at the structure of the negotiations that were going on until now, I think the Ukraine's just pulled out because they felt they weren't really going anywhere just in the last day or so. Putin puts in charge, or at least the person gets designated, to be the Russian negotiator, the culture minister, uh, a guy called uh, Medzinsky. Now, it's interesting that Mr. Medzinsky is actually born in Ukraine. So probably in the Soviet period, he would have had Ukrainian on his passport as his ethnicity. But he clearly sees himself as a great Russian. And Medzinsky, according to one of my colleagues uh, from Russia, who I met with at the weekend, said, uh, was the drafter, the ghostwriter of some of these pamphlets and essays that Putin's been writing about Ukraine and Russia belonging together. And so in a way, he's sending out the guy to negotiate history rather than, you know, as you're saying, what we would normally think would be a kind of a territorial settlement based on other goals, strategic goals, history strategy. History is a weapon, it's instrumentalized, but it's a goal for Putin as well of, of getting his version of history accepted by everybody. You know, the denazification of Ukraine, lands that belong to Russia. They're preparing, I mean, another of the things I was reading before we came in here, to annex Kherson, uh, the city that's uh, just uh, above Crimea. And that's strategically important, getting to the other part of your question, because it controls the water and the irrigation, you know, basically coming into uh, Crimea. 
And you know, so if you were looking at uh, consolidation of Crimea after the annexation and the supplies of Crimea and all the water sources, you'd want to control an awful lot of the places that uh, Putin is focusing on now, or the Russian forces are f focusing on now. Russia wanted to have this whole Sea of Azov, that little you know, enclave of sea inside of uh, the Black Sea through the Kerch Straits, declared a Russian sea. But of course, there's all these Ukrainian ports there, including Mariupol, that they've just reduced to rubble, and Melitopol and Berdyansk. Because that um, is part of this new Russia lands, the lands that Catherine the Great annexed from the Ottoman Empire. And it's also um, partly on the, on the Sea of Azov, where Peter the Great built the first Russian Black Sea fleet in Taganrog, which is the Russian port there. Now, all of these are great grain ports, and you know this is having this horrible knock-on effect for food security, but they, they fall into that category of you know, strategic things that one would think you would be taking in battle, but they also kind of go back into Russian history. Because again, Catherine the Great, and uh, she uh, annexed Crimea from the Ottoman Empire. She's, she's the founder of Odessa. Now, of course, she's a German princess, but you know, she becomes one of the great Russian empresses. But Odessa, that fabled city, maybe many people here have relatives who came from Odessa at some point. I know everybody I meet who comes you know, from the United States who uh, came from those lands, either came from Odessa or came out from Odessa at different points on all the ships that you know, came out of that great port. And Putin thinks of Odessa as a Russian city because most people are Russian-speaking. But people in Odessa don't think of themselves as Russian. And, and Odessa was always multicultural, multi-ethnic. Mariupol had a huge population of Greeks. It was the kind of the, the center of, um, uh, even in its name, it um, suggests that, of Pontic Greeks. And some of the, the, the largest casualties have been Greeks and Greek nationals who kind of moved to Mariupol in the period of you know, Ukrainian's uh, independence and also see themselves as citizens of Ukraine. So it's exactly that. It, it, it's hard to kind of get the balance because it's all you know, blurred together for Putin. And that's what makes it so, you know, so difficult to deal with. I mean, again, not a surprise, but the way that he's conceiving of it makes it very difficult to figure out how you can reach a settlement here. Because at this point, given all the slaughter, Ukrainians are not going to settle for Putin's version of history and for him taking control of all of these you know, cities. Because at one point, Catherine the Great was there, or you know, basically he thinks that they kind of belong to his version of, uh, of Russian history. Hi, I'm Cheyenne, and I was curious that if any, what advice would you give to a young person who wants to or is thinking of pursuing a career in worldly affairs like you? Um, she was asking um, if um, what advice um, to give to a younger person um, who is interested in studying world affairs. Well, I would actually say study history. Uh, don't just do it like Vladimir Putin, which is, you know, kind of your own version of history. Try to read wide, as widely as possible because Putin... Um, his press secretary once told a whole group of us when we were having a meeting with Putin back in 2011, he said, Putin reads all the time. Reading is also very important. But, it, but he reads Russian history, only Russian history. He doesn't obviously have a, a well-balanced um, approach to the you know, humanities and critical thinking. But I really do think that having a, a, a grounding in history is extremely important uh, for world affairs, as well as all of the other skills that um, uh, you can acquire. And as I have Ambassador Hodges here, Think about joining the Foreign Service. We really need people like you, you know, to step up into public service and to um, work for uh, the Foreign Service. Uh, our Foreign Service has been gutted, unfortunately, um, over the last uh, several years because of you know, the politicization of public service. 
And, you know, we really need more young people to come into uh, federal government uh, service, and especially uh, uh, from places like uh, Cleveland to bring in, you know, different perspectives into Washington, D.C. and into the Foreign Service. And Ambassador Hodges is a native of Cleveland, and I'm sure that she can tell you, you know, how to, you know, apply. There's internships uh, for the um, Foreign Service. I can do them online um, as well. And, and there are scholarships uh, um, for, you know, people like yourself, um, as students, to spend some time in Washington, D.C. And uh, uh, Foreign Service internships is also the Peace Corps, um, Amy, um, who is around, uh, there you are, Amy, uh, Peace Corps. Um, you were in Kutaisi in Georgia, which is kind of amazing, in the Republic of Georgia, right in the middle of the period when Russia invaded Georgia. You might get, you know, to one of these places, a very exciting time, uh, sometimes a bit too exciting. But these are all kind of pathways, and getting involved in the Cleveland Council on World Affairs is also another great way. So thank you for that question.